Welcome to the podcast, 10 Solutions for a Feminist Climate Resilient Recovery. I am Maria Lee from the global network, WOCAN, Women Organizing for Change in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management. The current global crisis presents a unique opportunity to put climate resilience at the center of the conversation around what is important and how to build a better future for all. The solutions to build resilience to crisis are linked to the preservation of our Earth's resources and the stewardship of these. In this podcast series, we will be sharing 10 solutions for a climate resilient post-recovery through conversations with international thought leaders. Joining us in this episode is Amanda Ellis, who talks passionately about feminist leadership and what it means for her. She shares examples from her own career and research that show the benefits of having more women in leadership positions for promoting gender equality and a sustainable future. Amanda currently serves as ASU Director Global Partnerships for the Global Futures Laboratory and Executive Director of the Hawaii Asia Pacific for the Julie Ann Regal Global Institute of Sustainability. She was previously New Zealand's Head of Mission, Ambassador and Permanent Representative to the United Nations in Geneva and Prime Minister's Special Envoy. Amanda was also the first woman to lead the New Zealand aid program, managing an annual budget of $0.6 billion, and is the co-founder of the Financial Alliance for Women. Hello, Amanda. Aloha from Hawaii. Lovely to be with you, Maria. Yeah, thank you so much, Amanda, for accepting our invitation to talk about uh, feminist leadership. Two months ago, Pumzili Amlambon Kuka, the executive director of the UN Women, and Gabriela Ramos, the OECD chief of staff and Sherpa to the G20, convened a virtual roundtable called the Women Leaders Virtual Roundtable on COVID-19 and the future. The discussion acknowledged the scarcity of women's voices in all decision-making spheres, including in this crisis, I mean, women hold only 7% of the world's government leadership role. And this recently, a call to action for G7 stakeholders was released with recommendations for gender equality actions in COVID response and recovery. And I know you were part of this uh, round table. So to take a step back, in your perspective, Amanda, what are the lessons that we can draw from the way women and men leaders have approached the current crisis and now these recovery response and strategies? I think it's an absolutely key question, Maria. And when we look at the fact that women are only 7% of country leaders, but 40% of the positive responses to COVID, I think it's really clear that some of the traits that we associate with women's leadership have been particularly successful in addressing this crisis. And I would say that there are four Cs, consultation, 
communication, compassion, and cooperation. So first of all, consultation. Women leaders and those male leaders who I think have exhibited what I would call feminist traits have consulted very closely with scientists and they have taken advice from scientists. Second of all, this notion of being able to empathize, to be compassionate, to really make sure that we are putting people first. And I'm originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand, where we have a saying, what is the most important thing? It is people, it is people, it is people. Hey tangata, hey tangata, hey tangata. And I think often we can forget that without paying attention to people first, there won't be an economy. Third, clear and consistent communication. And I think, again, as a proud New Zealander, seeing the role that the nightly communication from Jacinda Ardern, both formally and in social media, played in helping the country understand that they were one team and that everybody needed to come together for the fourth C, which was cooperation. Everybody needed to pull together to ensure that they were going to be able to beat COVID. And what's interesting when we look at countries like New Zealand that have effectively eliminated COVID-19 and those that are run by more male authoritarian leaders like the US, Brazil, the UK, where the death rate has been much, much higher. It is fascinating to see Nick Kristoff had a very interesting article a couple of weeks ago, which looked at the death toll. And he ran the numbers and realized that women leaders were responsible for six times fewer deaths than their male counterparts. And just to give you, uh, put a figure on it, in the US at that time, when there were 114,000 deaths, I think there's close to 135,000 now, that would have meant 102,000 lives saved out of 114,000. So I think we can really see the correlation between these feminist styles of leadership and what I call feminist traits of leadership, which of course, as some male leaders have exhibited as well, have really, really shown up a stark difference in the successful response to COVID. And I think too, uh, just to finish, it's very important for brave feminist scholars to speak up and help influence change. And here in Hawaii, there actually is a feminist recovery plan for COVID-19, which has been done by the State Council for Women and a whole range of partners in collaboration. So for me also, seeing activism as part of the answer, where we have groups of women who get together and say, we absolutely need to put a feminist lens on this broader picture. So I think have it for all of us, it's very important to have an understanding of science and how it interacts, how the climate debate interfaces with the health crisis and how for we as feminist scholars, feminist activists and feminists in development theory and practice 
that we make sure that we bring a gender lens, but that we are across the science and we are across what is happening to our broader planetary boundaries and our societal boundaries. Mm. It seems like even the way that um, a woman would look at the situation, and, and you did mention these inter interconnections between health and climate issues and the importance of having a gender lens. And it, it seems to me that this is uh, a trait of a uh, feminist leadership, kind of looking across different dimensions, connecting them to have like a, a more holistic vision and then make decisions that do take into account those different dimensions. So it seems like it's this is also part of the the, um, the principles of a, a feminist leadership to, to have this interconnectedness uh, all, always in mind. Um, yeah, I think that, that's a really interesting point. And what I am learning more and more is the critical element of diversity, having different voices at the table. And of course, when we look at, at gender data in relation to economic outcomes, and we see that in the private sector, for example, having at least a third of women in the boardroom and senior management correlates with around a 6% higher return on investment. The diversity dividend, as it's being called, is something that more and more businesses are taking into account. And I think you're right, it's a perhaps more of a feminist leadership tray to have an inclusive and holistic approach. But I'm glad to say that there are many men also now who are recognizing this transdisciplinary approach. And uh, Julie Wrigley, who uh, was the, the visionary, along with Michael Crow, who's the president at Arizona State University for the Global Institute of Sustainability, very much had this holistic vision. And what's exciting now is that there's a new initiative called the Global Futures Laboratory, which looks at this interconnected concept, this 13 different areas that are seen as coming together and bringing perspectives that we really need if we're going to keep the planet habitable for humans. And you'll be pleased to know that there's a very strong focus on SDG 5, gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls, as an integral part of this initiative. Mm -hmm. and, and you made this point about the business case that have been made with hard numbers connecting having more women in boards with um, more positive outcomes and performance. I'm not sure, and maybe we need that, we have those kind of hard data linking having more women in um, not only government, but also international agencies and um, the, the positive outcome that that leads to. Well, I think, I think you make a wonderful point because... There actually is longitudinal data now in all areas. And if we look at policymakers, for example, we know that women who have a seat at the table are more likely to advocate for environmental justice, for policies that have an intergenerational welfare dividend, uh, for things like girls' ed education, for example, better family nutrition, 
And that work is, was has been done at the World Bank and, and other agencies over quite a long time period now. What is interesting too is that there was a recent study done by Foreign Policy which showed that in the corporate world, women are 73% times more like 73% more likely than male counterparts to take into account sustainability. And this I find fascinating when we look at this shift from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. And you look at the letter that Larry Fink from BlackRock, which has about $10 trillion of assets under management, who really in his annual letter pointed this out. If we don't take care of stakeholders and if we don't take care of the planet and the environment, well, you know, business can't happen in a vacuum. So this broader uh, commitment by the business roundtable 200 in the US uh, last September, the, the Davos declaration in January, I think we're really seeing business ahead of policymakers in understanding the importance of the diversity dividend. We mentioned before that women are only 7% of country leaders. We know that only one in five is uh, a minister. So uh, when we look at MPs, one in four MPs is a woman. And so, you know, that's what, 25%. Now, what's interesting is that way, way back, more than 20 years ago, ECOSOC had a commitment from countries that there would be gender parity in parliaments by the year 2000. Well, here we are in 2020, which is the 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary of the Beijing Platform for Action, the 20th anniversary of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on uh, women, peace and security. It's the 10th anniversary of the new holistic framework for UN women and the women empowerment principles. But when we actually look around the world, only 4% of parliaments have reached gender parity. And one of those is the well-known example of Rwanda, where, of course, there was the huge genocide, and that's a pretty drastic way of getting to gender parity in parliaments. But I think when we look at the data, and it is important to look at the data and analyse it, we really are not seeing the kind of representation that we need. And, of course, that's numbers as well as feminist values. But one of the biggest problems that I see right now is the lack of women's political voice. Uh, if we're looking to save our planet, we really need to make sure that we have a broader representation. And particularly looking at those data points to see that women are more likely to have a focus on good governance, on environmental issues, on intergenerational equality. All of those values play out in a different kind of policymaking. And I think COVID has shown that up very starkly. It, it's still extraordinary to me that 7% of leaders could have 40% of the successful responses to COVID. So hopefully this is a watershed year, a watershed moment, and we are really going to be able to seize this moment and build back better, not just spend trillions of dollars 
getting back to the status quo. And one other point that I think is really critical to make is that your your pointing to interconnectedness is absolutely critical when it comes to consistency of policy making frameworks too. And if we think back to 2015, when 195 countries signed on to the Paris Climate Accords, that very same year, the IMF calculated some $5 trillion in fossil fuel subsidies. Now, the latest data available is 2017, and it's gone up since then. So $5.4 trillion, I'm talking trillion with a T, was spent on fossil fuel subsidies in 2017 at the same time as 195 countries have committed, are committed with the exception of the US national government to keeping our global warming to two degrees and hopefully 1.5 degrees. So calling out those kinds of inconsistencies is really important and I think it underscores your point about how critical this interconnected, joined up approach is. And and on this nexus of gender equality and, and climate and making decisions that are coherent with what we want, I was actually reading an article recently with the title, if we are serious about gender equality, we need more women in leadership roles. So we, we touch on that. And I wanted to ask you, um, looking back at, you talked about the binge in uh, 20 plus, you talk about commitments that have been made already quite a long time ago and continue to be made. How do you see that we can make progress on this matter of having more women in leadership position, especially in relation to these topics of, of climate and, and sustainability? What type of incentives can we look at? And you touched on this uh, importance of changing attitudes, but um, in a larger sense, what do you see could be incentives for uh, progress to be accelerated on, on this? Well, I'm going to be controversial. I was not a proponent of quotas or even temporary special measures. And having seen just how slowly things have moved, when we have an extraordinary range of very talented, well-trained, qualified women. And I looked at the data around the top 50 countries with uh, the highest women's representation in their political systems. And almost 80% of them had some form of quota or temporary special measure. So that now is my view. I think we do need those and we need to, to break this log jam. So that I think is very important, particularly when we look at some of the attitudinal surveys. Uh, the Reykjavik Gender Index, which is done by WPP uh, and was launched two years ago by the Prime Minister of Iceland, is very interesting. It reviews the world's most powerful economy. So it's the G7 plus the BRICS. And over half of the respondents said they felt uncomfortable with the notion of a woman as a CEO and half the respondents said they felt uncomfortable with the notion of a woman leading a country. Wow. Now, that to me seems absolutely extraordinary in 2020 and we went from lows of 
seven and nine percent in Russia, right through to a high of seventy-two percent in Canada. But I think that gives you a sense of some of the battles that we are still up against. There are some very old-fashioned, traditional, sexist views. And when we hear individual stories of women, and I think it's important to tell her story as well as his story, we can see how often women's achievements have actually been suppressed. And that begins to color our view of how competent and able women are. Now, just one example. Did you know that it was actually a woman scientist back in the 1840s who first made the connection between CO2, higher levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, and a warming planet? Now, you may have known that. I did not. And, of course, it was male colleagues who then wrote papers several years later and who were credited with that discovery. I think those of us who saw that fabulous film uh, about the women who were the NASA scientists, and I think now there's been NASA, one of NASA's buildings has actually been named after, I think it was Catherine Hall, who was one of these brilliant NASA scientists. So, so often we don't tell the story of women's achievements and that also colors our view. And I'm very proud to say that the ASU building in Washington, D.C. is one of the first to be called after women. It actually is the Barbara Barrett and Sandra Day O'Connor building after two well-known alum. And that, to me, is just what we need to be doing. We need to be positively naming and reminding people of the fabulous role models who have so much for us to learn from. Uh, here in Hawaii, interestingly, Queen Liliokalani, who was the first woman uh, monarch in Hawaii, uh, has been having her legacy revived recently. And it's wonderful to see it, the month of September is her birthday. And it's wonderful to see each year feminist scholars and artists and activists come out and remind people of her leadership legacy. Mm -hmm. and, and I think I really like the point, obviously quotas are important, but I really like your point about having role models and exposing more publicly and more widely the, um, the examples of women that were able to, to reach leadership position and make incredible changes. I think that's definitely a way to incentivize women and um, probably through also some mentoring. Mentorship is so critical and I could not be more grateful to the extraordinary women who have helped me throughout my career. I know when I first went to the World Bank and had come from being the head of women's markets at Westpac, where in just three years we'd gone from a standing start to over half a billion dollars in business directly attributable to our Women in Business Initiative. So I knew that the need was there. And when I went to the World Bank, I said, we need to start a gender and private sector initiative. And I said, wow, gosh, do we really? Uh, aren't we just looking at microfinance? But I was very lucky the VP for uh, the private sector in the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, said, okay, well, look, you've 
got a good track record. I'll give you six months. And if you can prove the business case, we'll give you five people and $5 million to start this new initiative. So within three months, in fact, we were on our way. But it was very much due to a, a woman called Jan Piercy, who was the U.S. executive director, uh, I guess under the Clinton administration it must have been, and she herself had been very active in banking and finance and was a huge proponent of women's economic empowerment, knew the business case, but was also an active mentor in helping me think through how did we present the case to the World Bank Board, how do we ensure that this became a permanent initiative? And it's great now that, uh, gosh, when did I start? Two, 2003, I started. And now in 2020, it's a billion-dollar fund at the World Bank. And there's a number of fantastic initiatives that have really brought gender to the forefront, which, of course, have made the World Bank's, the World Bank Group, the World Bank and the IFC lending more successful. So... Without Jan, that would have been impossible. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwiala was a managing director at the World Bank and very well known internationally, obviously having been finance minister of the year uh, and the work that she had done in Nigeria was well known. She was also an extraordinarily generous mentor, as was Dame Meg Taylor, who is now the first woman to run the Pacific Islands Forum. She was previously the Papua New Guinean ambassador to the US, and when I met her, was serving as ombudsman in the World Bank group and a fabulous mentor too. So, so many generous senior women. And in my own country of New Zealand, I am just so blessed that uh, our first woman prime minister, Jenny Shipley, our first elected woman prime minister, Helen Clark, and our former governor general, uh, Dame Sylvia Cartwright, have all been incredible mentors at difficult times uh, during my uh, career journey. So, so lucky. And yes, I, I am mentoring at the moment uh, two amazing young women at ASU, uh, one of whom is very taken up with the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment, and another Sakshi who is thinking about her career in the renewable energy field and how she can uh, progress as a young woman in a field that has been quite male-dominated. And I think what is great is it's not only mentorship, it's also networks and connections. So through my network of amazing women activists, feminists, and uh, colleagues, that I have been able to put my two young mentees in touch with other senior women who can help them on their career journey. And I think too, as we get older, we recognize that the young women we are mentoring also become our mentors because the world that they live in and the high tech world are so much different to the world we grew up on. I grew up writing all my essays by hand at university. So they become mentors to us and windows into very rapidly changing world. And I must say, when we look at the global youth climate action movement, the majority of the leaders are brilliant young women. So Greta Thunberg is obviously the best known, but I was on a, a, a foreign policy 
uh, virtual event with Shie Bastida a couple of days ago. And she is a Mexican Chilean indigenous youth woman activist who is quite extraordinary. Alexandra Villanueva is another example. And these are all co-leaders of the Fridays for Future movement. So I think we're seeing young women come into their own as well. And they are creating a fabulous set of role models. They're brave enough to stand up to some of these older, denigrating male politicians who have been very condescending to them. When these young women have pointed out that we need to listen to the science, we need to act now if we're going to reverse uh, the CO2 in the atmosphere to the extent we need to by 2030, or we are going to be seeing a continued escalation of the extraordinary outsized events that are part of this climate crisis, whether it be the wildfires in Australia and now in the Arctic of all places. When we look at the, you know, in Houston, we had 100-year floods that happened three times in five years. We're really looking at so many different natural disasters which are all linked to this climate crisis. Maria, I just have to, I've just remembered Mary Robinson has a fabulous quote where she says, climate change is a man-made problem in search of a feminist solution. Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> yes. That's a very good one. Well, maybe to, to conclude, and, and some of your points might be part of, of this conclusion, if you had to, to give a call to action today, looking at this topic about empowering women and, and women leaders and advancing sustainability, what would be your call to action? My call to action would be to absolutely send the elevator back down. And this is something a mentor of mine said to me, too many women who reach senior positions become queen bees and buzz around on their own when what we actually need is to send the elevator down to make sure that other women can come up or it's the ladder down, but actually making sure that we have women in leadership positions who are able to have their voices heard and bring other diverse voices to the table because we all know the data is there, the diversity dividend is real. And if we look at the data from McKinsey, if we were to eliminate gender inequalities, there would be something between 12 and $28 trillion added to the global economy by 2025. So there is a very sound business case as well as a climate case and a human rights case for ensuring that we have gender equality and the empowerment of women and that we meet our commitments to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Well, thank you, Amanda, for this call to action. And thank you again for joining us in this conversation. Thank you. And thank you for the tremendous work that you and Jeanette and Wilkan do. You've been listening to Wokan Podcast, 10 Solutions for a Feminist Climate Resilient Recovery. If you want to know more about Wokan's activities, 
please go to www.ocan.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.